So every couple of years, we like to put together a show of everyone that teaches at St. Ambrose. This can include um, tenured faculty, uh, adjunct instructors, staff, and uh, this last year's faculty show is no different. Uh, artists such as Les Bell, local legends, um, and tenured faculty like Kristen Quinn showed. I myself was in the show, uh, Allison Philly. So uh, we got the whole group together and just gave everyone a few minutes to talk and it was a pretty interesting conversation. Okay, we'll go ahead and get started. Um, for those of you who haven't been to a Q&A before, feel free to ask questions at any time. Um, we're recording this to put it on our website uh, and I can now announce that you can find these podcasts on Apple Podcasts. So if you search Caddish Gallery on Apple Podcasts, they're there, or on SoundCloud, you can find them there. There's a little thing where the Caddish Gallery is all one word. I don't know, maybe we can explore fixing yeah. that somehow, but, but uh, yeah. So um, it's fall 2018, and we're here with our first exhibition of the year. Um, welcoming back students and uh, the show is the 2018 faculty and staff exhibition and so I have a large panel of guests today let's go ahead and just all introduce ourselves I'm Steve Banks Steve you're you're uh, you've been here before you're yes. back again many many moons ago yes. okay cool uh, Kat Anderson Kristen Quinn Randy Richmond Les Bell class of 72 should have been 1969, but, you know. <laughs> uh, Joseph Lappy. Chair. New chair to the department, it's true. Uh, thank you all for coming. And, um, you know, this is sort of a Royal Rumble uh, Q&A this time, so we'll just sort of uh, play it by ear. I'm unaware that was taking place. <laughs> yeah, <I was> <laughs> yeah. say, the last artist standing will Steve, win. Steve will take that way too seriously. <laughs> Um, you know, so I guess in the interest of time, we'll just sort of move around and see um, see if we can each take a moment and discuss uh, the work that we have in the gallery. Uh, I like to do this podcast in the gallery so we can actually talk about the work, you know, in front of it and um, lead to any questions that come up from the audience. So, Steve, let's go ahead and start with you since you're... Okay. Uh, the piece I have uh, divided by down there is uh, basically... Uh, Two different characters. Hey, look at that. Just in time for the podcast. <laughs> yeah, um, two different characters that are separated by that nail board, which to me kind of represents strife or breakdown in communication or just sort of the hardships and the, the stuff that gets in the way from things being harmonious. So that's that's it in a nutshell. Uh -huh. It's, you know, obviously a lot of hours pounding nails into a board, but I don't <laughs> think I really need to describe that process. It's pretty evident how that went down. Those are good nails. They are. I've got buckets full of them. <laughs> okay, so we could also say uh, that you, for those of you who are interested in Steve's work, he's got to show up at the figgy right now at the very top floor. Three more days. Three more days. Oh, yeah. So get down there to see it. Uh, I just took a second look at it today with my class. and um, sort of a second look, what would that be like, Kat? <laughs> <laughs> I need a first look. You need to get that first look, huh? <laughs> Well, it's a dense show. It rewards multiple uh, viewings, and um, it's also, you know, takes this work to a whole different extreme in terms of 
ambition and scale. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about the, other than hammering nails into a board, the process that you employ to make those objects? Well, it originally started, I had two masks that were roughly round on either side of it, masks or head sorts of things, and so it actually looked like a divided by symbol on its side. Mm. And uh, just over time, I looked at it and was not really that happy with how that worked, so mm -hmm. even though the conceptual underpinning was the divided by sign, mm -hmm. for me, the, the visual has to be king. And mm -hmm. in that case, the visual wasn't working, so I dumped the masks mm -hmm. and came up with the carved panels and mm -hmm. uh, the woods left over from some demolition project I did that was somebody's piece of furniture at some point in some mm -hmm. old building and uh, just nice big wonderful clean wood and then a lot of hours with a Dremel tool and a little bit of paint and there you go. So you, you carve with a Dremel, okay. Yeah. So that's how you can kind of tackle some of these big carving jobs. Oh yeah. Right? yeah. When I imagine Joseph like doing hand carving and I'm like, okay. I <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, how before you, sir? This was all computer. Uh, <laughs> well, not all. Yeah, exactly. There was yeah. still ten hours a piece. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, so describe your uh, relationship with painting and sculpture, and how you how they developed this process—the carving and painting and drawing all together. Well, I like doing everything. Yeah. That's um, kind of how I pursued things through school, and actually in graduate school. Uh, it was not a media-specific program. It was mm -hmm. you work on an idea, and whatever media is appropriate to execute that idea mm -hmm. is what you do. Whereas typically, when you go to like a grad school, you go for painting or photography or something like this. Mm -hmm. And this was uh, you could take any faculty that you wanted to to work with, and they didn't have to be in your area because mm -hmm. there wasn't an area to be in. Mm -hmm. um, I just I like doing all kinds of things. And I've yeah. avoided glass. Uh, because it looks to me like it's crack cocaine, I can recognize that that's a rabbit's hole I would fall down, and so I just avoid it. Yeah, uh, time-intensive would yeah, be the last thing uh, you do, yeah. Five, ten years later, I'm like, what happened to all the other things I used to do? Just last um, but yeah, I like, some days I like to make uh, sculptural relief things, sometimes I like to paint. Um, absolute worst case scenario, I might clean up my studio, but that usually requires literally like the fire marshal coming in, <laughs> which did happen last summer. Um, <laughs> But, uh, no, not every day is a carving day, not every day is a painting day. And thank God not every day is a nailing nails into a board day. Right, right. So. Carpal tunnel, yeah. Well, and one of my students mentioned earlier today that they noticed that the, the little card said from like 2004 to 2018 or something like yes. that, you know. And, and you mentioned over time. So um, the palimpsest idea that you have on the title of your show with Figgy, mm -hmm. and this idea of these things changing over time, you just you let them sort of uh, slow boil, I guess, huh? Yeah, well, I can't say that when I, like, let's say I'm working on something in 2004, I don't necessarily think that it's not done, Right. but 2008, me comes along and goes, oh, man, you were content with that? That mm -hmm. is not finished. That needs this, mm -hmm. this, and this, and then it'll hang out for a few years, and like, mm -hmm. Well, it's a good thing 2008 thought that because he was not right. It's, it needs this. And so they keep going, and then sometimes they're just like it's so far the wrong direction or I'm not happy with it that it gets a pretty substantial rework. Mm -hmm. Or there might be a bit that I really like, and if you look, you'll see some parts that have been stitched on or I'll just cut off part of another piece and attach it to something else. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. until it leaves my possession, it is mine to do with. Keep keep as, working yeah. it. Yeah. Huh. Um, and... Uh, those changes occur 
within the narrative of the piece itself, the logic of the piece itself, or do they just sometimes become grist for the mill to become a totally different thing? Yes. They can Bo completely... Both, both, both yeah. things. Sometimes I hone it, and some other times it's just uh, it's like an underlayer. I, uh, between undergrad and grad school, I've had a chance to go to Italy, and that was the first time I'd been around history, mm -hmm. where like you're in Rome and those walls are 2,000 years old. Right. They have different layers of posters and they've been repaired and things have been built up and weathered down and built up and weathered down and just seeing that was that was almost as good as going into the cathedrals and some of the other things was just seeing yeah. that that kind of history there yeah. and um, sometimes the history is respectful mm -hmm. to what came before it right and other times it's like well thanks Ruskins for building these nice roads now get out <laughs> over. Um, so it's kind of a pave it over yeah yeah. yeah. And so you can go, you can go either way with that. Because I was, yeah. I was looking at the labels and how you cross out the titles, and I was wondering, I was wondering if it was you searching out the the ideal version of this one narrative, and it changes. I was trying to discern whether the titles were interrelated or where they were really paving over. And it's more paving over yeah. typically than yeah. finesse. I see. Cool. Cool. Uh, Throw out questions anytime, but if you Anyone? have any, any particular Bueller? question for Steve or... So have you ever called somebody up or went to their house and said, hey, I need that back so i got to do a little more work on that one site? Uh, or do you, or do you not, actually not, call it quits? Not the way you've described it, per se, but I did... Well, yeah, okay, I did. A uh, buddy of mine I gave a piece to as a wedding present, and uh, I wasn't satisfied with, so I'm reworking. But, you know, this is like a one of my two best friends since like sixth grade. So that's actually slowed me way down because what would be my normal Tom Fuller? I'm like, oh man, I should do something better than my normal stupidity. I should raise the, the dumb up a little bit. So, just keep but not too it. often. I Normally once it's gone, I'm thankful that it's gone and then I can work with the other. Just things. keep an eye on the marital status. Get it done while they're still married. <laughs> I think we're safe with these two. Okay. Uh, okay, well, so, Kat's good segue because you have the installation piece over there. Yeah. Um, so, like Steve, I like um, the history of materials, and for me, materials have a lot of memory, more so, or at least that's where I am right now, more so than maybe drawing, because I've lived with some of the things that are back there: the bed, the um, the two cradles, not quite as long, but. Um, so for me, I the things change and morph as I change and morph, and um, so I I do have an older piece. So I'm kind of it is a good segue from Steve. Um, so the piece that's on the wall, the print, is actually from my undergraduate uh, studies back in 1987. Mm. And um, so if you can't figure it out, I might as well just tell you what it is. Um, when I was in high school, I had. Um, I got pregnant and I gave my, my son up for adoption. So um, just this past January, he found me um, through a series of events. So this is kind of regurgitating, looking back on that memory, hence the overturned cradle with the baby underneath, and then kind of working your way forward. There's a different way of thinking about the boy. And, um, in its current context. So in my mind, he's still 
almost like an infant because I still don't know him. So our relationship is very much in its infancy. Mm -hmm. infancy. Um, so the, the new, I would say the newest object in there is the, the egg that's on, I think it still sits up. Yep. Still sits up. I've had to clean it a couple of times. Um, I was on a walk and happened to be just, it was over by Crow Creek, and just happened to turn my head, and here was a robin's egg that I believe another bird had stolen from a nest, mm. dropped on the horsetail, and it just stuck on the horsetail. So the, the actual bird is still in there. Oh my God. So, that's um, why it's heavy and wants to that's, fall yeah, over. Yeah, so, um, so that was like the, the cherry on the Sunday service. <laughs> like I gotta get that birding in there, and it was almost the right color of blue. That the, there's three blue dots on the the rusted uh, baby's uh, bed, if you will. That's on the other bed. So there's a lot, you know, rust. Your memories rust, and water is always an important part of all my work, whether it's physical, drawn, or or other. You know, water is your memory. Water is a symbol for for memory. So. There's, there's a lot of heavy stuff in there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Mentally and physically. So. Sure, sure. Well, I was really drawn to it, but there's a lot of message in that, so that's why it was really provoking to me, and I didn't know why. Mm -hmm. So now I understand. Yeah. Um, the accumulation of the objects, the arrangement of the objects, this is... Uh, a new subject that you're exploring this year, obviously, but has this has this object taken a different form before? Is this the first time you've tried to install this this stuff and arrange um, this stuff? Well, the last show that we had, mm -hmm. I had, I, I was dealing with height, and I had a big fishing oh, yeah. hook, oh, yeah. Yeah. and right. it was called um, N slash A's cradle. Oh. So it was, it had, it didn't have a cradle in it, but it had references to mm -hmm. infant figures, and I had a piece over here that was a um, kind of a camouflaged, um, you could see a baby in there, but you really couldn't see it. Mm -hmm. um, so oddly enough, my son's name is, well, he was named Nathan um, um, Michael, after my boyfriend who's sitting back there. Um, and then when he was adopted, his name was Adam um, Faith is actually his last name. Mm -hmm. So the N-A is actually Nathan slash Adam. So it was just this really weird, like the letters. And then in your class, mm -hmm. someone put up the American Needs Farmers logo right by my office, the, that letters. I'm like, he, and he came here to campus. That's so time, weird, and yeah. And he's like, A and F. I'm like, oh my God, this is like too weird. Like you can't make up this stuff. It's just too weird. So there were all these like little like signs. It's like a movie. I swear to God, it's like a movie. Ah, um, so. uh, yeah, right here. Here you go. <laughs> Welcome. Oh, hi. Sorry, I'm late. It's okay. For the podcast, I'll say that Heidi Hernandez has entered the room. <laughs> wow. So okay. Well, that really helps. Um, Give insight so, to yeah, the piece and kind of like a sequel to the last yeah, show, but sure. it just yeah, these things have never been in that configuration. But I yeah. use a lot of the same materials as far as the used items, yeah, um, the rusty stuff, the robe. I do a lot of knitting and you know, that kind of thing. So. You go out on voyaging missions to find things. Is it just by chance through I never personal look connection? 
for very rarely will I look for something like I need this. It's like the things are just there. So if you come to my house, you will call me a hoarder. Um, <laughs> but I'm a very organized hoarder. Um, so a lot of times it's just like, oh, yeah, that will work. It's, it's very happenstance and kind of accidental sometimes. Oh, so oh yeah, I didn't talk about that. So the little grids um, I counted or calculated um, every day since he's been born. So every tick mark is each square I think has 270 tick marks. So the black ones are all the days that I did not was not in contact with him. The kind of reddish orange ones that pick up on the rust color are all the days up until like today I think. Or his birthday, which is actually next Friday, um, that I have known him. So there's sort of that tracking as a calendar. Cool. Okay. Um, I, I, I guess just in the interest of time, we should kind of keep moving. Yeah. This is even a bigger group than last year, or two years ago, isn't it? I think so. Uh, Kristen. Kristen Quinn's paintings, uh, we can see two here on the wall, and then there's another one out in the uh, foyer. Kristen, do you want to talk a little bit about your process, just sort of in general? Sure. It's kind of hard to follow that. I think it's pretty brave to share all that. Um, Any earth-shattering personal narratives you'd like to share with us right now? <laughs> Make something, I mean, yeah, I mean, make something up. Make something up. It's not a circus. About birds and circus. I'm going to be working on the story. That's all it's about. Birds? Segway? Yeah. I brought over a painting that's a little bit smaller to show, and it was between that painting and this painting. And um, the other painting is more typically like the way I work. And this last year, <clears throat> I've been really trying to unlearn the way I work and trying to say it um, simpler and trying to let um, paint re reference landscape without imagery. And so like the foreground of that large painting for me feels like water at night. And um, so that's, for me, it's a risk not to put branches stuff in front of it or a boat um, so I think they're they're paintings that are um, sort of in flux they feel pretty um, watery water is important to me too um, I mean they're earth-shattering things about them certainly they're about they are about the things that I'm drawn to and the students know that I I am a geek about migration and birding and I'm out weird times of day looking for things you know like I'm determined I'm not going to leave the river until I see that prothonotory warbler um, um, and so a lot of influence comes from the light but but I think the paintings are really about passage and transition and so um, the last three years I lost my parents and um, so the birds are really about travel and passage and moving on, on this wonderful flyway. And um, the other crazy obsession, Heidi loves this, Chris loves this too, 
is the circus museum in Baraboo. <laughs> Have you been there? The circus wagons and their color and the posters and the aged um, sideshow banners and ugh, I'm crazy about that place. Um, and so that that's part of an influence. So that's strange. Is it a prayer flag? Is it a circus tent? Is it a sail from a ship? Um, I like the oddity of that form coming through. It becomes like a shelter for those cute little birds moving through. Those are geese, by the way, moving through. <laughs> and this little painting over here, it's it's a strange little painting. But um, again, I it's it was about a murmuration, a bird murmuration, and making that sort of shape, that sort of cuff shape. But it also oh. could it also could be sunflower seeds on display <laughs> or something. Um, but to, to just sort of let that blue splurp be that blue splurp, that's a big risk for me because I. My temptation is to really overdo it, overdo it. So I'm trying to let paint be paint and like let paint suggest rain, let paint suggest glaciers, let paint suggest wind and um, trying not to make it very overwrought. So some of the paintings right now are, I don't think like uh, friends of mine who run this gallery I show in, they kind of came down and went, hmm, oh, okay. <laughs> didn't get it but it's going somewhere but again I think sometimes in your process you have to sort of not fall for ways that you've worked and unlearn things and that's where I am right now um, I was just trying to say it another way so there's that yes in different classes with you you've talked about using like unconventional tools to make your art did you use anything special for either of these paintings uh, I used um, when you cut your hair the the braids the men's barber shears. I use the guard the guards a lot. That's in underneath there a little bit. Um, I use squeegees. I use spatulas. Um, you know, so <laughs> is that unconventional? A little bit. <laughs> My hands. These are mostly with brush though. It seems like when you when you were talking about letting the paint be paint, that really comes through for me, especially in the bottom half of this larger painting with the with the sort of palette knife that skates the phthalo across the surface there, mm -hmm. and then how and that is interesting how that sort of guides your painterly choice to to turn those into the semblance of a bird, and then they start to turn the larger the birds get, the more the form becomes yeah. the bird, uh -huh. and but. It also, for some reason, the way you go about your paintings um, and, the, and the hand prints that you get on the sides and the drips that you get on the sides, this is kind of an Ambrosian thing. But after going to Iowa and coming back and seeing, seeing that, it seems to make your paintings more of an object. Like if you, were, if you were to frame that or put wood around the edges or even tape it off before you paint it, that you would be saying, saying too many things about the tradition of the medium and it, and it seems to it seems to give power to your idea of breaking your notions of paint down mm -hmm. into becoming paint with that with letting that the sides be kind of be kind of this uh, performative gesture of, of handling mm -hmm. and, and, the, and the implications that it's something more transformative than the traditional painting yeah I like this little hit on the sides yeah, they do add something <laughs> Thanks, Lee. <laughs> um, so, to kind of get back to that, uh, 
you're talking about breaking these patterns, and um, you have a process that's maybe more abstract early, and mm -hmm. then it you put these um, elements that are representational sort of at the end, right? Is that sort of not generally always. How, not necessarily? Not always, no. Um, but but you're, that's the representational things that you're sort of saying, maybe I don't need those because I could represent or embody the landscape in a different way or yeah. more. Yeah, so that's what I'm thinking. That's where I'm going okay. right now. So that, that sort of, that sentiment sort of reminds me of looking at Rothko paintings, like early Rothkos to later Rothkos, mm -hmm. and how the early ones had the sort of the general composition, yeah. Yeah. and then he put, put figures on top of it, and then he kind of got rid of the figures. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's not a one-to-one -one because it's not necessarily on top, but the idea that you illustrate a figure of a bird or of a branch or of a ship to narrate this narrative versus embodying that thing, mm -hmm. that's interesting and um, certainly challenging. It was challenging in the 40s, but still challenging <laughs> today, right? I mean, it's challenging today to make an abstract painting. So it is. I mean, your process has always been abstract, but it sounds like you, you're going further into abstraction temporarily I mean for okay, now for I now. just I, I just want to talk this way because I I feel like um, sometimes paintings get too easy and I, it becomes like they use a trope and I, I have to set rules in my studio so you know sometimes the rule is no black silhouettes mm -hmm. sometimes the rule is no ships yeah <laughs> so I mean and that that constraint opens up a door you know, always opens up a door for me. Move forward. Yeah. They seem to have a weather in that sense, and and the, they're they're kind of paint storms <laughs> and systems. You know, like the migration seem like systems that that then there could be representation buried underneath, and it's just interesting how that relates to nature and the systems in nature. Well, you know, <laughs> I was a crazy nut about fossil hunting, and so that that knowledge of what's underneath. And what lives underneath and the different, right. yeah, I love that. Just like those Rome walls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful in their in their ruin, right? Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Totally, totally. Okay, any other questions for Kristen? No. Who's okay. gonna ask? Who's gonna ask Chris Reno a question? <laughs> I was told that he had the hard questions for himself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that was stated out loud We'll just, we're we're just in the word it whole semiotics. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Randy, why don't you uh, talk a little bit about the process that you've employed here? Okay, so I didn't bring anything here. No. Actually, they're back here in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> we put Randy in the corner. I actually like them back in the corner because there's so much color out here, and this is a little bit more quiet and subdued. So what I brought was a couple of... Uh, selenium-toned Van Dyke brown prints. And it's a very old photo process that involves mixing some chemicals, including a silver nitrate, and then coating the watercolor paper. And then the images are the size of the negative itself. So, um, but I kind of, I've hybridized it. So I actually start with a digital camera and I, I work on the image and then I flip it over to a negative and then print it on a high resolution transparency film before I expose the paper. 
this allows me to make adjustments, not in the printing, not in the contact printing, but in the negative. So if I make a print and it needs adjustments, and I go back and I adjust the negative before I print another one. And one thing I've learned over the years is that um, an amber layer, I chose amber because I, looking back through the years of poly contrast filters and darkroom use, the different, the different tones provided a different contrast to the multi-graded paper. So I chose a, an amber layer that I put within the electronic file to adjust the contrast level of the print. It's not real predictable. You gotta, you gotta see the print to be able to understand what needs to be changed. So the reason I like the Van Dyke prints is because in the last 10 years, photography has changed uh, way too much. And I, I like to see myself as a, a crusader for the time period when tonal qualities were, weren't, didn't have to be overstated and loud and a concept and a story and an idea was more important than the amount of flash you could dig out of your computer. <laughs> um, also, there's a, a, a handmade quality to it that I enjoy as well. Um, and these two particular uh, prints are of the Nahant Marsh, which is over by the uh, uh, 280 Bridge natural area. Um, so that area in particular, since it's a strange little island of nature that's completely surrounded by industry, I thought that's a, a particularly nice space to, to work this way. And, uh, I don't have any big stories beyond that. Well, I mean, let's delve into the, the statement that you made about the broader themes in photography today. I mean, you're obviously not uh, against digital photography. You're not no, a hyper-traditionalist in the fact that you refuse right. to utilize it or to take advantage of right. it. Right, that'd be foolish. But, but in... There are photographers out there who, who completely reject or reject digital photography entirely. Uh-huh. And then you're not one of them. You're just what, what you're suggesting is that there are there are some things being lost in the transition to the digital. Yeah, there's things that you know we don't, we don't end up like the ugly American in Spain who forgot their toothbrush and run around you know acting like an idiot. You got you got to remember there's important stuff that was learned in the first 160 years of photography. Yeah, yeah. and you got to take it with you because I don't care what the medium, it's the history that you see in the final product that makes it interesting. Yeah. Sure. And there's so much that's in photography that's being done, done now. It, it's, in, in my opinion, it's starting to settle out a little bit, and there's more story and concept and communication going on than there was. Sure. But for the longest time, it was just who can make the brightest, loudest, largest print possible. Right, right. And, and I found that really offensive. Right. Blockbuster um, photography, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But so I, I guess I'm just wanting to the world to know that there's, there's still ways to, to create photography that isn't just button pushing. And if it is just button pushing, that's okay too. Because the, 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 the most often heard thing I, I hear, the, the, let me try that again. <laughs> the, the, most, the, the biggest issue I hear from people is that digital has no soul. 
well, they've said that every time photography has changed from large sheets to small spools to whatever else. It does, you just have to know where to find it. And you have to understand that every time they come up with something new, there's new things that you have to learn. So there's an entire generation of people who have stubbornly resisted even wetting their big toe into that pool of knowledge. And there's so much there that can be utilized. They're just new, new things that you gotta learn. Well, that's why I appreciate the fact that you're here on campus with us because... Oh shucks, Chris. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the warm and fuzzies, you know, because, um, well, when you think about our program and, you know, this whole Kaddish tradition that we have of, you know, examining graphic design and, and painting and printing from historical trends to, to modern to modern technology. And, and we, all, we all of us who have looked at Father Kaddish think about how well, if he were alive today, almost certainly he'd be using the computer and, and, and using Photoshop and Illustrator and InDesign as well because he was never one to turn away from technology. You know, he just had a great appreciation for tradition. So uh -huh. I think you fit right in with what has been established here at the school over the years. But I also hear you talking about these prints, and I think about Allison making the cyanotypes over the summer. Uh -huh. And I think, that, you know, everything... It's all interrelated, you know. Um, think about the history of painters using photographs. Painters feeling a freedom from representation because of photography, but also painters being early adopters of photographic technology. Well, before there was even photographic technology, there was the camera obscura. Yeah, the camera obscura, you know, er, you know early uh, painters with the camera obscura, and then folks like Degas being early adopters of the actual camera. I mean, it's just... In, in their paintings being so similar to the photographs that they were making. I mean, it's always been this idea of the imagery coming from light and the imagery coming from the hand and how they interact. So uh -huh. I, I, I personally really um, appreciate that perspective. So. Well, it's nice to be appreciated. <laughs> uh, does anyone have any uh, questions for Randy about this process? And um, Has anybody seen it? No, that's actually that's the that's the moon. Okay. That's the moon. And actually that's that specific one is a good example of the the tonal range that you can achieve using Van Dyke or like a platinum or palladium process. I mean when you when you look across the grass and you look back to the tree line, every little bit of detail that existed just and some, some some of that grass it just looks like pieces of thread that are that are actually on the paper but it's actually it's just the reaction to the silver nitrate in that one-to-one -one formula with the with the film okay now I don't I want to get too far into this because we're running out of time but just briefly why why do you need the digital in this in this particular case for you why did the digital end up being of advantage to take to make the digital printout well, because I, I'm not limited to camera size. At that point. For, yeah. You can, and, you and can right print now, that negative as large as you want. Not a, I, I can print it as large as I want, yes, but that's not the point. Yeah. I, what I do is find the appropriate size to print it to. So the size of those prints is actually the, the native size of the image as it comes out of the camera. So in essence, it is a contact print. Mm -hmm. that, that is the size of the image unenlarged. As the camera saves it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Heidi.
You're up. All right. I got these two paintings back here. <laughs> they tell stories. I like to do a lot of research when I paint. It gives me an opportunity to dig deep into subject matter. So I did this series of paintings about the turn of the century and some exciting things that were happening. And um, I started learning about like the history of bicycles and uh, found out some really interesting things and the tie between the bicycle and feminism. How can those be related? But bloomers were because of bicycles and just women were just gaining all this freedom with a bicycle. So I thought that was really interesting. There was a woman bicyclist named Tilly Anderson who was from Chicago. She was actually an immigrant. She immigrated to Chicago, but she like showed those boys like how to <laughs> roll with her bicycle. She like tore it up. And then there were like these bicycle gangs because there was like these things are fast and they started to like form gangs. And there was a gang in Chicago called the Scorchers and they would just like tear up the town and like they were like a biker gang before there were motorcycles. So there, all this interesting stuff comes out of research and I just I love it. And the other paintings about Houdini and you know his life is really mysterious. He died on Halloween. He had like this love, this romantic wife that you know like, gave his life to and he's told her that um, if any of this was real with these mediums being able to contact the dead, that he would contact her. So she had seances every year on Halloween. Until, I think she wow. did it for 30 years or something and really? never contacted her. <laughs> never got back he to never, her. Yeah, he never got back to her. <laughs> so, you know, he was trying to like rat out those phony mediums. You know, <laughs> yeah. like, you, like go into like, you know, like show their tricks off to people so that yeah, they yeah. take advantage of. But yeah, it's just fun for me huh. to like take something that I think is interesting and find out more about it. Because there is a lot of stuff hidden, like if you do some research and reading, and mm -hmm. that's what my paintings reflect. Cool. Well, you know, um, the 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 type, the the letter forms, the words and images uh, combined together. I think that's a pretty interesting aspect of this this duo. Um, is that typical for you to um, explore the sign making as well as the image making? Yeah, I have a yeah. love for type and the way things were done in the old days with mm -hmm. one shot and a brush and mm -hmm. I just think there's so much beauty in a, mm -hmm. in a hand painted sign or a hand painted wagon wheel at the circus museum. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean this end of the gallery is sort of a nice um, array of found or weathered or, you know, the, the narratives sort of link. You, know, you guys have shown, or you, you and Steve have shown together before, is that correct? Mm -hmm. uh, your work has a sort of natural um, inclination towards each other and that history. So um, I, one thing that comes to mind is the, is that an old mattress cover? Yes. Is that what's painted on? Yeah. Yes. Gives you that 1920s feel. Like, yeah. Is the one on the right side, on my right, is that a drop cloth or did you paint, is that a mattress cover too? That's just fabric I found that I liked, like uh -huh. the, the age, like okay. the, it kind of looked like old and yeah, you know, yeah, it kind of yeah. gave you that feeling. Yeah. Like nice. the type does too, you have these different type styles from different eras and yeah, type from the turn of the century is like breathtaking, it's so beautiful. <laughs> the bottom the seems 20s, like you, just, you took a wash rag or something and, and glued it on. But the fact that the that those that the background or that the surface of the thing you're painting on comes into play with the form really reminds me of being down in the tunnels in New York in the subways and seeing the 
the images, the posters on the walls that are already peeling. And uh, for some reason, it, it just makes me think about if you could play with that surface that you're painting on. Maybe you collaged paper behind it, and it would look like there have been posters taken on and taken put back on over time, taken off and taken put back on. And, uh, so yeah, it just made me think about, oh, she could be implying painting on concrete or painting on some kind of surface that creates an illusion. Oh, no, it's yeah. What, um, what, is it always this period of history, the turn of the century, or is you explore other, other aspects of history too? Just when you start reading, there's just, that's really interesting. I want to do more about this and find out more about this. And then you just get these images and you sketch and you draw and you yeah. read more and yeah. ends up in a painting. <laughs> <laughs> do you project? Do you, no, you no, just, no, no. Uh, you work freehand <laughs> to, um, to build I the imagery? I think it loses so much when you're just projecting something. So mm. I do use references, of course, but I, you know, I try to change and, you know, like layers. I like seeing, like you said, I like seeing patterns and words and things show through. So when you work from an image, do you grid? Do you just you just freehand? You just build it, build it by hand until it starts to look right. Okay. So you would not take the Randy approach of using a digital process to help. Uh, it's okay. It's okay. No, I, no, no, no judgment. No, no, no judgment. No, no, no. I'm just trying to find a. What are you doing? I really enjoy doing graphic arts. <laughs> so it's like when you pull things in on a computer, I mean, yeah. it's, it's fun. I have no beef with No beef the with the digital? Age, yeah. yeah. No. But it, it, wouldn't, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't appeal to you personally. I don't know. It does. Oh. Every, like, yeah, I could do some digital art. I can, <laughs> I can pull it some, yeah. I don't have to. <laughs> no, and I do. I do. I, I, yeah, I you do. It. It's, it's interesting yeah. that you talked about Houdini and the tricks and that he does, the illusions that he makes, and then the illusions that you make without maybe using tape or, mm -hmm. and what that talks about, the trickery of the medium. Right. And yeah. it almost, it's like almost you arbitrarily came upon this interesting. Yeah, you have the sleight of hand. I like the sleight of hand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Underwater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, how are you painting with both your hands tied behind you? <laughs> <laughs> so, did you say you be reading some aspect of history and say, I need to put this, are, are they always this size, or? I like to paint big. I feel like I fit more in and layer more, but not always that big. Sometimes I do smaller, too, but it depends on how much information's there. Sometimes you need a lot of room to squeeze it all in there. Well, okay, so that comes to mind. Um, I know Kristen makes little collages on occasion to kind of find forms and compositions. Do you did you collage any of these? Do you find found imagery in collage ever, or is it simply as it I sketch. builds on I do sketch sketching. collages kind of in my So you have different found images and from your research, mm -hmm. and then you, you, you combine them yeah. in drawing. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Cool, cool. Any, anyone have any questions for Heidi? I should also note for the purposes of the podcast that Allison has entered the building. <laughs> and, very, very and Renee, Renee is also here, but she's played a cool in the back. So, uh, but we'll, we'll go to Les next. Um, Les has the drawings in the in the other room, one of which being that fellow. Oh yeah, this fellow. Um, let's see. I'm a painter, and uh, because I make more paintings than I can 
sell. I, I'm kind of being crowded out at home. So I have the luxury of looking at certain paintings for a number of years, and they get worked on, and then they get stuffed away, and then I pull them out, and you know, as Steve was mentioning, a couple of years of not seeing something, you pull it out, and you see a lot about what's wrong and what's right with it. But uh, so some of my paintings will have quote-unquote matured over a number of years. So that was my process. I retired in 2012 from this noteworthy department and uh, was painting happily away in my basement studio uh, until the fateful night of November 8th, 2016, <laughs> which sort of pulled the rug out from under me. And uh, the election, like many thoughtful people, I hope I'm in that category, <laughs> freaked me out really, really badly. And, uh, it was difficult for me. I felt like I had a really important subject in my work, but I just felt like I had to contribute some energy to a new political vantage point. And um, so I just, I don't know. I'd been doing some small drawings on uh, Bristol board with colored pencil, which Did you mentioned on the podcast that it just showed us that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, Trump has entered the building. Unless <laughs> <laughs> this held up a drawing of, of our president. So that was the medium I turned to to attempt to start making commentary on the political scene. And I didn't know where I was going with it. Um, and it was kind of a rough start, but as the circus came to town and the clowns continued to pour out of the car, uh, there were more than enough subjects to keep me hopping all the time. This is an old one, and this is number 242. Today, I, I did number 364. Um, now, and you take voice on Facebook, right? Well, I to the New York Times, which is super important in my life. Um, so sometimes I'm being the lazy retired professor lying on the couch with coffee in the New York Times, and it's like, damn, uh, there'll be an image or a thought will, will come up. And I just you know run up to my office start drawing. My intention has uh, changed focus from just meandering and being pissed off all the time. I'm still <laughs> pissed off all the time, but you know, I, I try to keep up. You know, my thing is, I taught illustration here for a while, and I was an illustrator. I put myself through grad school as an illustrator. So I've got some background in it, but I thought, this is not a commission piece. Uh, the Washington Post did not call me and say, could you do a hilarious drawing of you know, this catastrophe? So what I said to myself is, they're going to be fast. If I need to change medium immediately, you know, if it needs to be a really crude cartoonish thing, leaning towards Ralph Steadman or whatever, if it needs to be more of a polished drawing, I'm not 
sitting in my office waiting for people to call me to hire me as an illustrator so I can flip-flop all over the place and, and work in different styles as the anger uh, calls the style for me. So, and I keep trying to stop. You, know, <laughs> you got an addiction. 98, 99, oh, I think 100 would be a good number. Uh, and then some crazy stuff would come up. So. I guess it's helping me uh, keep my eye on the Constitution and the transgressions thereon and American ideals that are getting trampled on, et cetera, et cetera. And you don't need the soapbox speech. But uh, if you look through all 364 of them, you, you could not help but notice this is an angry person. This is a person who is. Uh, Defending something, you know, uh, like a mother bear or something. And I guess uh, the thing I'm defending is ideals that I think probably a lot of people in this room hold dear. So, shut up, Bell. Okay. No, no, wait. Because I want to, I want to, because you just said this is an angry person. Now, are you talking about the subject of the picture or are you talking about the artist? I'm talking about the artist. I see. Because, uh, I, I, yeah, I mean, Trump. Our president has a way of making everything, everything revolves around him, right? I mean, we, we can all, whether, whatever we think about pol politics and the situation, we can all agree that everything has sort of started to orbit around him. For sure. You know, and so, you know, in some ways you've been pulled into that orbit, but there, there does seem to be, it's less than Trump in a dialogue at this point, you know, and I, I was really curious to hear you, hear, hear you say that, you know, that... Um, you're processing the situation as very personal, but you're also you're also sending it out into this medium that is constructive and is. I post is these on Facebook. What you see in uh, the frames is just the drawing uh, itself. A majority of them have text um, on them, and then you know you put something on Facebook. There's room to write a little bit top before you even get to the image. So uh, these are only the illustration, but I'm also the author of these little mini diatribes and you know, blasts of steam and stuff like that. Allison? So you have over 300 of these, and um, are they just sitting around your house? Or, you said you posted They're them. sitting around my house. Sounds like a book. They're on Facebook. If you... I know. I'm like, I got See yeah, if you want to see them, there's probably 200 at least on Facebook. So, any other questions? I think a lot of people would be interested in seeing them all together. Yeah, me too. <laughs> <laughs> when it's over. Yeah, when it's over. <laughs> <laughs> I was I curious. There's not like 800. Let's hope. The this fuel for your work comes from a different place than your fuel used to. Oh yeah, for sure. And how does that play out in your studio work? And do you think, you know, at the conclusion of this, hopefully, um, can you go back? Can you switch back to the gas you were using before, yeah. or will that? Hey, I think I change can. you. I think you know the, um, the issues I was dealing with. I don't really talk about it much, but it was, uh, uh, I'm the father of two kids, uh, a boy and a girl, uh, a man and a woman, 
and um, watching my daughter navigate a sexist society was uh, really potent stuff for me. So um, my subject matter had been young women transitioning into womanhood and trying to figure out you know, what's it all about, Alfie. So that was very potent, and I think increasingly meaningful, especially as the Trump administration has rolled out its uh, you know, misogyny. Um, but by the same token, that was you know over here getting back at, at the administration. I should say that my great-grandfather, my grandmother, my artist grandmother's father wrote this thing, well, he collaged this thing called the American's Creed. And it was comprised of snippets from historical American documents. It's really brief. And you read it, and you just, you know, you want to stand up and cheer. I mean, it's, a, it's an American bit of propaganda, but it's really beautiful. And if you read that now, it's just sort of, oh my gosh, you know, how far the mighty have fallen since that moment. So I, I'm hoping to get, I mean, I'm paying it. I'm trying to de-addict myself to this because it's, I don't know, it's just sort of painful to pay so much attention to the new characters popping up every day and the interrelationship of them to the old characters and the, you know, putting them into a, a visual context. It's kind of stressful for me, but uh, I just feel like it, I feel like I need to do it. I, I, since I retired, I, I've been looking for causes that I can hitch my horse to, this is a cause I just feel super strong about. So in a way, it's not that different from where you're coming from in your other words. Yeah, but, yeah there's this commonality that runs through it. This, it's a, like an urgency, it seems. It is an urgency. It's a really good word. Okay. Joseph. Yeah. Let's oh, yeah. talk to uh, I'll be quick because it's five o'clock and I want to make sure. We're gonna this is a marathon. We're gonna go a little yeah, further okay. today. We're gonna go over. It's okay. I wanna make sure there's crowd, more so. pieces here than mine. I wanna make sure that they can talk about. Yeah. Um, so I have two sets of pieces. One is directly behind us and one is alongside the wall if you look outside the window. Uh, I tend to work in large bodies of work, thinking of it as a singular unit. Uh, uh, that is built through multiples, um, not only through uh, the process and the pieces, but also uh, making prints of every single object so that there is a dissemination of that that's affordable to people while also having a unique object trying to play that world. Uh, this one in particular uh, is really about the hypocrisy of us uh, dealing with hypocrisy, or dealing with uh, trickster gods. So you see the this is also just a portion of it. This is about, I think, 65 feet long in total. So you're missing, um, you're you're missing some people <laughs> here. Um, uh, at the top, you've got um, some trickster gods. There's Raven. There's Coyote. There's Nancy the Spider, Bear Rabbit, and Prometheus. Um, in this case, uh, uh, I was trying to create a new pantheon, um, and and oftentimes in religions you will find uh, men at the forefront of that, uh, particularly uh, men that somehow are able to create the world out of nothing but themselves, which oftentimes uh, leads to uh, 
uh, private moments with themselves, uh, and uh, as opposed to uh, people who uh, um, incubate and and push out life themselves. So it's also meant to be the fates, the three fates. Uh, it's also meant to be the triune. It's also meant to be um, incorporating a lot of uh, lore and myth with religion, uh, and and then also just life, uh, just just that slow slog of um, how do we define ourselves, and the only way we can define ourselves is to define what we're not, and so we can never truly define ourselves because uh, all we can keep saying is we're if we're this, then we can't be that, we can't be that, we can't be that, which is kind of a And then we don't need to talk about that one. We've talked about that a lot. It's basically about memory. And um, <laughs> it was from last yeah, it was from last show. It's a little, yeah, it's a, about loss. It's about uh, uh, I'm a sad sack. I do a lot of sad sack things. Um, uh, flowers and um, uh, plants are really important as well in in terms of the interaction not only between the characters themselves. So. What's the meaning between um, the flowers and the birch? It's uh, you see. So this is the main character here. It's coming out uh, where ovaries <laughs> generally be. Um, you see both male and female flowers of the birch tree. Uh, it's also a subtle joke in the sense that I use birch uh, to carve. So that was just like an insider joke myself. Uh, uh, but that's attached to um, creation. There's a uh, heart over here. This is an aloe plant. Aloe uh, is a medicinal plant um, that can, that can uh, be used as a solve. So that's the general run of it. So the narratives, the, um, the mythic narratives, the, the symbols, the um, quality of um, mystery that you um, sort of Inject into these narratives. Um, talk a little bit about where that comes from for you. How you kind of have developed that over the years. Uh, I just um, I have a. It's all hackneyed, kind of. You know, we're we're uh, more alike than we are apart. You can see that in comparative religion. You can see that in mythology and storytelling. Um, we all have a question of. Uh, how we got here, why we're here, what we're doing, how that occurs, um, and we come up with as many different stories as possible, mm -hmm. and then um, we're jerks to each other, right? We just fight for us to be the true, like the true talk, right? Um, and so, so I would say the majority of my work uh, in both book format, which we don't really have today. Uh, <laughs> uh, whether it's books or, or through these larger installation pieces, it really comes down to um, uh, we're the trickster gods. We, we are uh, selfish and wonderful. We do horrible things that create goodness. We do good things that create horribleness. Um, there's, there's no, it's really hard to find the right path. Um, and so the path, the, ultimately the path is uh, trying to be better to each other at a moment and then waking up and failing and trying to do it a little bit better and then failing and then trying to do it a little bit better. Yeah. So that's, that's what it's from.
So ultimately, you're a, a connoisseur of a story. You love a good story, but you're also interested in these overlaps. Well, as a I think the story, story defines us. Yeah. Um, I think our stories define us. Uh, so yeah, I like stories. Yeah. Because I think that those, if anything, uh, our greatest falsehoods are our biggest truths. Yeah. Like those stories are, are who we are. Right. Um, and and uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's also a big difference between the big T truth and little, little T truth. Um, you know, everybody has their own truths that are within them. Um, we're all multiple aspects of different people. Blah, 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 blah. It's interesting that you talk about sort of the, the negativity, but with these, I, I guess if I were to look at them without hearing that, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't think that. They seem to be about the very breadth of life and the very aspect of diversity and um, the ways that that um, these things infringe, infringe upon, upon us in ways that we have the freedom to sort of cultivate who we are. Um, and so, so, so just to hear you talk about it, I see it more opening up for possibilities. I think uh, part of what I mean is, is you can't really have one without the other. You can't, you can't have happiness without knowing what sadness is. You can't have the opposite of that. And so I would ultimately say my stuff is hopeful. I, I do believe that. I think uh, while I jokingly called myself a sad sack artist, and I would I would uh, stick to my guns on that. Um, I think that's what allows us to be uh, closer to ourselves, and and through that, happier in whatever way that that fits. Okay, Allison, you're up. <coughs> Um, so I guess I can say I have two pieces in this show that are both related, but kind of one verging on new directions. So the piece that's like on the postcard and that's outside is, um, actually what I had in the faculty show the last time, and it's part of a series called Guide to Domestic Measurement. And it's kind of, the whole series is taking kind of household objects and things that we use to define like our domesticity and our livelihood and it's ways that people compare you know yourselves to other compare yourselves to the Joneses so you know what kind of house do you have what is your lawn care routine that kind of stuff and then building these elaborate patterns out of these really really boring objects like lawn mowers and washing machines and cast iron skillets and things like that and kind of giving them a new life um, and a little bit of glitz and glam with a little glitter we all need that um and then i've been wanting for a while to kind of delve back into doing some textile stuff and working with quilting so that's kind of what led to this quilt and i kind of decided that i didn't really want to do all of the colors like I'd done a quilt block earlier in the year with a bunch of colors and was screen printing through this portfolio exchange over the summer I kind of just went down this big deep rabbit hole of sanotyping this summer so I really wanted to try the sanotyping on fabric and one of the nice things about sanotyping on fabric is that it 
it doesn't change the, the hand of the fabric, it doesn't change the feel of the fabric because it's kind of embedded in that top layer of the cotton, as opposed to screen printing, which is actually printing a layer of basically plastic on there, a polymer, so it's kind of a layer of acrylic on there. So it, it didn't change the way the fabric felt when you like sewed it and cut it, so that was kind of fun. But every, um, each block, so there's nine blocks in there, each block is one of the patterns. So there's nine, well actually there's not nine patterns, some of the patterns are repeated. Um, and some of them are the positive and some of them are the negative, so some of them are blue on a white field and some of them are, you know, white on a blue field. So it was kind of fun to play with that. Um, there was quite a large learning curve with this, quite, quite a bit of time. Because um, I designed the quilt, I designed all the fabric, you know, sanitized all the fabric, designed the quilt pattern, and sewed everything, and quilted everything. So it was a little time consuming. <laughs> but yeah, so it's kind of a new direction. I don't really know where it's going from here, but I kind of liked the idea of making an object that's tied historically to domesticity, it's tied to the home, it's, it's a necessity object, but it also has a very long <coughs> tradition of uh, working with the hand and tradition and like society as a whole and womanhood as a whole, um, although all of that has kind of changed over time. But So to make an object that's about domesticity in a way that is a domestic medium in some ways, so that was kind of an, another level to it, which wasn't I mean, the history of screen printing is posters and signage at your grocery store. Like, that's the history of the medium. So, yeah, this is a much older tradition, I think, in that regard. Is there anything in, in this one um, that the viewer could interpret as uh, critical of the, the roles that have been doled out by men to women? It's a really um, sloppy way of putting it, sorry, but. I don't know. I, w I don't know if I'd go that far. I mean, part of it's all, it's not just about the roles between men and women, but also just like societal, like you have to have the house with the 2.5 children and the picket fence and the manicured lawn. Like it's not just the male-female roles as much as like what is the American dream and like is it something everyone wants? Is it attainable? Is it actually real? Is it not, you know, kind of what are, there's a lot of layers in there. So like I purpose, I actually put my lawnmower, which I have never mowed a lawn in my entire life, I'm gonna say that out loud. <laughs> um, so my partner mows the lawn and we have an electric lawnmower because we have a really tiny yard. So I purposely put an electric lawnmower in there because I thought it was a little bit of a dig on the American dream because like that's a new thing, like, you know, it's not this big gas guzzling, it's not a riding. John Deere, lawnmower kind of thing. So there's some, like, in my mind, a little bit of a dig on that kind of stuff, but it's not necessarily meant to be an overt reaction to that. It's more of a questioning of it. So do, do you think about different histories of, of adornment, like like a doily or a tapestry? Yeah, so I, I, I've been very fascinated by wallpaper, and I'm very obsessed with wallpaper and history of wallpaper. And I've looked a lot at patterning over the ages and trends and popularity. I don't know if there's one specific time period that I'm like 
I'm specifically referencing, but I do kind of look at that a lot. You know, blueprints for houses or sanitation. Yes, that's true. That is also, yeah. Would be another whole area. They were in twelve with ammonia, though. Yeah. Hmm. Which, hmm. <laughs> when you get a paper cut, really steep. Yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> I've seen um, some cyanotypes that seem to suggest to me that at a certain point in history, the relative ease and stability of cyanotype really appealed to a lot of people and there were little hipster camera clubs that would bond together and go out and do some shooting and then you know, print in cyanotype. I wouldn't be surprised if there were something symbolic even in that color that had to do with craft and do it yourself and you know, rather than you push the button and we do the rest. It's like, no, I want to do the rest too. You know. And Delph. I have a, a new installation of my other job, the Hands Jewelers. I do the window displays and I just did a whole sanitype window. As I said, I really went down the rabbit hole. <laughs> <laughs> um, so as I was installing this, woman stopped me and go, is, is that indigo? It looks so much like indigo dye. And so there's that whole tradition of very, very long history of indigo dyeing, garment dyeing, and shibori, and multiple cultures, multiple reasons why indigo is really historically important. So I think there is something in a lot of societies and a lot of culture about that like deep dark blue, you know, blue willow and all of those kinds of things. There's something about that color. And during the 60s, indigo dyed jeans became the symbol of revolution, breaking away. Now they break away in new different ways. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was our way. <laughs> Are you talking about jeggings? Okay, so um yeah. We have one other artist, it's Renee, she's holding a sleeping baby. She's I, a teen. Do you, do you feel that you can a talk a little bit? Or, um, I'll, take, I'll, I'll keep standing, standing. on my shoulder. She gets mad at me if I sit next to her. Oh, God. <laughs> We've only seen her on Instagram. <laughs> yeah, right? right? Do you want to take a second and just describe a little bit about this process? Here? Uh, sure, sure. So, um, I'm adopted from South Korea, and I was adopted at three months old. Um, the majority of my life growing up, I attended a Korean culture camp, which was started up by Iowans for International Adoption. And I was really highly involved with that for a long time. Um, camper, got, grew up to be an intern, counselor, teacher, and then I was eventually on the Iowans for Inter International Adoption board. Um, in 2009, I did a birth family search um, with two people who were very close to me at the time, and um, they were able to find birth families, so I was there to witness that. However, my search failed. Um, and, excuse me, I always get choked up when I talk about this. Um, when I came back, uh, we, we had a, a, a talking panel um, at this Korean culture camp about our experiences. And what tends to happen naturally, right, is 
people always gravitate toward the adoptees who found their parents, and that's where all the questions went. And so for someone who is um, adopted, especially when you grow up in an intercultural and interracial family, um, your sense of identity can kind of be washed out. And I felt like I was kind of um, fading into the background again. So the way that I dealt with my anxiety is I started creating these digital collages. At first they were just um, on a personal blog. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with them. I never thought that I would be sharing them in a gallery with other people, which has happened a few times since. <laughs> so that was a nice surprise. Um, I think of these as um, self-portraits, although actually the only one that I've ever appeared in is this one right here. <laughs> one of the newer ones that I just made. Those are my chubby little baby legs right there in the sand. Um, and I, I think the reason why I don't usually include myself in them is because I've always had this weird distance and not really a strong attachment with my own identity. Um, so I think that although um, I've, I've heard a lot of people say that my work is it, it's kind of inviting, it's, it's easy to look at, but I think that there's also kind of this sense of distance. Um, you know, things, things that should be far away are kind of brought closer to the viewer, um, and, and things that seem small actually get larger. You never really see something at 100% scale of when I photographed it. <clears throat> um, and I think there's also a lot of irony behind them. Um, again, when you, when you grow up looking like one culture, but you've lived a completely different lifestyle, there's a lot of kind of um, assumptions that happen you have to do a lot of explaining with yourself. So nothing really is as it appears. Um, so for instance, like with the center one, the title of it is called Up, but you're not actually looking up at anything. Um, although they're windows, people kind of assume it's up higher, but they were actually fairly low. Um, it was a photo I'd taken on the side of a building in Leclerc. And you're also not getting that upward angle, right? You are right at eye level. Um, you're also not looking up at that flamingo there, it's, you're actually, I, it was looking down at it, and that flamingo technically would be looking back up at you. So your sense of perspective um, is, is changed, is warped, but it kind of tricks you in a way, um, and, and maybe in ways that you don't realize until someone points it out to you. So um, I've also had, you know, I think the, the style has changed a little bit in terms of how I've been handling the imagery lately. This series has been going on since um, about 2009-2010. Um, I've noticed that there's just there's a little bit more um, boldness and geometry that's worked in there, whereas before it was a lot of like soft <coughs> textures that and things imagery would kind of really blend into uh, one another more so than what they are right now. Um, I think part of that is because um, as a mom of two now, um, and, and looking back on my experiences, I, I kind of have these yeah. moments of clarity um, that really strike some, some pretty powerful emotions. And uh, um, you know, then, then it kind of brings on this other level of anxiety where 
a lot of my, my anxiety beforehand as an adoptee had to do with like trying to figure out who I was and where did I come from and what was my story. But I have talked to enough um, birth mothers and heard enough stories and been through enough experiences that I realized maybe um, knowing everything is not always the best. Um, and uh, m now I'm, I'm kind of actually more concerned about my birth mother in that um, she doesn't she, ha she, she doesn't have any closure of that knowing that I'm okay. So that's the, the thing that I've been playing around with in my mind most often. Um, so I think my work might kind of shift a little bit more now um, as of recently. Um, you know, I, even when you just send your kids off to daycare, you know, you're like, are they going to be okay? You know, and that's someone that you've interviewed and you've, you trust with your kid and you have to still drop them off every day. So to send them across the world um, and to never know, you know, if they're okay or if they're mad at you or how they would feel, I can't imagine living your life that way. Um, <clears throat> you know, being a mom myself and, and not getting that closure. So the, you're saying that, that that maybe that's coming out of this work and that maybe leading to a new body of work or uh, you yeah. might flip the script yeah. a little bit um, in terms I'm of not how sure, you... I'm not sure exactly how it might change stylistically. Um, the I, I will say too that with this more recent stuff, um, it's also been with photographs that I've taken here. So they used to be a combination of photos that I took in Korea and here, but it's been a long time since I've been there. Um, it might still be a while before I can get back. And I've also been questioning, like, well, what, what am I really, if I go back again, which I do want to do, what am I actually looking for? Because um, I don't, I don't know who said this, but uh, I once read a quote um, that said, identity is something that you create, it's not something that you find. Um, and so I'm like, well, this, I'm here, um, I'm not gonna get to Korea anytime soon for a number of reasons. Um, so what, what can I take that's around me and recontextualize it and make it more interesting? Did you say these are you and, and what is the, the meaning I, I theoretically am to get from them? Um, you know, I, I kind of leave that up into for interpretation on purpose because I'm looking for um, a way to sort of invite people in, you know, like something that's not necessarily screaming, hey, I'm Korean or, you know, hey, I'm adopted. It's just, you know, to be honest, when I make these, it's... Um, it's more of an exploration of how I can visualize some of my emotions and how I'm feeling at the time. There, some of these happen, you know, after work, and um, some of them happen at like three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> you know, whenever I just kind of get that urge, or if I'm having some sort of <laughs> yeah, or that you know, and I can't get back to sleep. Um, I don't. I don't really. I don't really like to tell people what they should get from these because. Um, um, if I'm interrupting for a moment, it's not so much that I would want you to tell me what I get from it, but to tell me what you put into it, mm -hmm, so that mm -hmm. I know what your meaning is. And I mean, whenever I see a work of art, it's nice. I, I, I'll 
I put my story onto the piece. Sure. But mm -hmm. when I get to talk to like do the artist like I've been able to do here, mm -hmm. then I get to see, okay, I didn't understand how that might mean because me and symbols, I mean I like the Valentine, I like the flag, but mm -hmm. beyond that, mm -hmm. um, I won't go anywhere. <laughs> so again, it, it adds to me talking about all these layers we've been talking about mm -hmm. of information that, that I can then mold my it may shift my story. Sure. Well, it's mm -hmm. a nice story, but I just like the image mm -hmm. and what I what I put what I get out of it, not so much what you put into it. Mm -hmm. But you, what you put into it makes me like what I like about it. Right. The other thing is, I'm also adopted, mm -hmm. and so I was curious: Were you adopted into a white family or a non-white family? White family. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also was adopted in a white family, mm -hmm. and so it's interesting because I'm. Uh, they say, well, um, on my father's side related to Daniel Boone, and I look in the mirror and I never see Daniel Boone. Hmm. <laughs> so, I, I mean, I would love to have a conversation with you off podcast, probably, about things like that. Um, I lost him, sorry. So, okay, so the first question is, like, what what do these mean to me, or well, what? Take one of them and sort of dice it and say, mm -hmm. this is what was in my mind when I put this Sure. Well, I'll talk, I'll talk about this first one, the one with my, <laughs> my legs in there. Um, I just, I, once again, I, I just kind of had this urgency to make something. Um, so I, I dug into my um, photo archives. And the first image that I came across that stood out to me at that time was this old um, picture that um, I found of me and my mom um, crouched down on the beach. I don't know where exactly we were. Um, and I was looking at the reflection in the sand, um, and I just, I really enjoyed it, and I also enjoyed that it was a picture of me and my mom together. Um, so on, on that kind of, the whole parenthood narrative level, it stood out to me, so I, I took that out, opened it in Photoshop, and left it there. And then, um, I, you know, I, the way that I work as a digital collage artist is very different than how I work as a graphic designer. Um, because with these, it's just it's all based on intuition and kind of randomness, um, and so I was I was looking for something else to kind of blend with it, and I came across my photos from the um, art at the market at the Freight House Farmers Market, and so this is Allison. This should look familiar to you. Um, this is actually like a, a macro mm -hmm. photo of part of a screen printing mm -hmm. screen. And when you screen print, you do something called flooding the screen, which is kind of fill it, fill, put a light layer of ink right over top of it before you actually press down and print. And then I looked at the water and the sand and everything, and I thought about this flood of emotions, um, but how sometimes even after that, you, you kind of come out feeling a little numb and dry, and you can see that the screen isn't actually really flooded you know, at this time. There's still ink there, um, and it, it's been spread, but um, it is not, in fact, actually flooded, but that's the title of the piece. Thank you. I don't have a question, but I have two comments. From what I've seen you do in the past, and this little human here will probably be a big help in that, is that you're, you seem to be less afraid of negative space. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it's, it's okay now, a little bit. The other thing is, you guys are a great team. I didn't see her lips move once. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's a great work of art. <laughs> well, I mean, 
to kind of encapsulate, I think, that discussion, I, I, I think I've always been fascinated by the way in which you're um, delving with these um, personal questions through um, finding images and spaces in these, uh, in, in your images that can kind of uh, I don't know, multiply or, or layer on top of themselves to provide almost a mirror, a mirror to yourself. I mean, it, it's randomness, it's like tarot, you know, you put the randomness mm -hmm. out there and then you start to pull the cards and find the symbols and, and create the narrative. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's therapeutic because that's bridged too far, but it's, it's helping you have a dialogue with yourself, uh, project these things out and then reabsorb them in, you know, and I, I think the layering of the, the ambiguity of the imagery is purposeful. You know, the, the ambiguity of the perspective is purposeful and the, the spaces. And I agree with what you said about holding the story loosely because that's part of a delight as an artist is to see how other people respond to your work and what they see. Yeah. Because once you give birth into it, it becomes its own. Yeah, it has, it has space right. to breathe as its own story. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, without you telling me your background, I see it just as different distortion techniques where something could fade and come into focus. Mm -hmm. But with you mentioning that, I start to think of like this idea of the visibility and invis invisibility mm -hmm. of what it is to mm -hmm. be someone, especially without going home to connect and, and sort of sort of figure out who you are. It seems like you could get lost in a crowd is what these images do and that everyone becomes a sort of face. Um, and it sort of talks about the, the detritus of personality mm -hmm. and also the way that personalities can sort of form from the detritus of a broken personality. It's, it's interesting how they seem to bridge those gaps and it, it relates kind of to Giacometti's sculptures of his fading man who mm -hmm. you get you can get nose up to and you'll never see that detail um, and or the invisible man you were talking about fuel earlier and this has been your fuel mm -hmm. and uh, this is your path of personal discovery and artistic discovery working together mm -hmm. so you know it, it's funny how you know, each one of us bring a story about fuel and why you know, it feeds us. To me, art always feeds my soul, and and that's what we've all been talking about here. People who know my history know that I was doing selfies before there was digital. <laughs> but I didn't see them. I, I don't see them as exploring myself as who I am. But what, one realization I had many moons ago. <coughs> was that I have this habit when I'm walking around and I see a piece of metal, I pick it up, nuts and bolts, eyes and ends. And it, so it occurred to me, and now I'm not going to be able to say what it was, but that I was looking for something solid because my past is not solid. And, and as far as also going to Korea. I, I'm Chinese Hungarian with a Spanish grandmother, is how I was told how I was produced. <laughs> and so I don't know if it's because China's first, but 
or it seems more exotic, but I've always, I've wanted to at least put my feet on that land. Mm -hmm. And I, I relate to the poor Hungarians in that they've never been able to win a revolution. <laughs> so, I don't know where I was going with that, but just something about being and who one is. And, right, and right. Connections or no connections. I like what you said about um, that you were looking for something solid. That's how I think about these prints, you know, um, uh, in that. I feel like, I don't know, I mean, photographs are, are essentially memories, right? And they're, to whatever extent, a truth, but then what happens when you merge these two truths together that come from different times? Is it, is it still a truth, or is this when it's, when it's actually fiction? Um, you know, I, I think that there's something interesting to be said about that, but then also, like, by taking all these memories and, and going through all this and making something tangible, um, it kind of makes me feel like, um, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, <laughs> um, that it's something that's there and, you know, I'm probably never going to be a super famous artist or anything, but it's something that if someone came across it, they could be like, oh, what was this about? Who, who did this? Um, you know, do, do you have their biography somewhere, you know, or, you know, what, what was their story? So it's a way just to tangibly make it feel a little bit more real rather than um, just having all these thoughts floating around in my mind. Mm -hmm. The other thing is why you haven't been to meet your birth mother or your birth parents, you now have someone genetically connected to you that mm -hmm. you get to see. Mm -hmm. And when I was 30, I found out that my biological mother and my adopted mother touch. Wow. So at 30, I got to see my mother. Mm -hmm. And so for the first time, I'm looking at something that is like a genetic, that's too, uh, uh, I don't like the word, but anyway, uh, I was, I'm related to. Mm -hmm. And uh, I can't, there are no words in, in my vocabulary. To explain what that meant and what that felt like. Mm -hmm. To all of a sudden be looking at my flesh. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you were lucky to have. Sure. Where is it? Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's definitely a powerful experience, especially when you go, you know, the majority of your life just not knowing what that's like at all. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. so that's where that came from. You know, like, oh, this is maybe a genetic behavior. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we heard today three very powerful and personal stories. And us who've never journeyed down this road become a little bit more understanding and empathetic. And as I've seen your work evolve, I remember us talking about the softness and all this. And then you talked about using the word focus and, and tying that into your personal journey. And, you, you know, and over time, we see you've been exploring this. And it, it kind of becomes meaningful to us yeah, yeah. as humans. OK. Any further questions for anyone? I'm not going to talk about yours. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
We, we are at, uh, we are at now at hour 30. All right, well, very briefly, I have uh, two pieces, this piece here between Kristen's and the painting outside, and they were both made this summer. Uh, I got away for a couple weeks to Michigan and just had made, took, made a personal residency and had some time to spend, so they really are just uh, objects that reflect the passing of time, the uh, ability to spend some time uh, just interacting with paint and pushing paint around and um, taking breaths and uh, seeing, seeing how they're gonna, um, seeing how the paint is gonna interact with itself and reacting to it. So, uh, is that found material? Did you weave that? That is watercolor. Um, watercolor on cotton, yeah. It's just paper, it's just paper. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like a, a sand clock and each dot is like the sand falling through. Yeah. I mean, it was like, I was in a cabin by myself. I've been making work like this for a while, but this is probably the most developed of this series. And because I had 10 or 12 days in complete isolation. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Watching the sun come up and go down and um, listen to the wind, you know. And, um, so that isolation and the time passage in the specific space helped in Certainly, well, the, yeah, the painting in there is definitely the palette is uh, specific to this place. This one is a little bit more. Um, uh, it looks like kind of sunset. Yeah, I guess it does a little bit, yeah. It seems like a rhythm to it. I can see it. I can see yeah. you making the dots yeah. at the Yeah, we mean, when you really reduce your means or your the, the aspects of the language you're using, you can really start to focus on each mark that you make and let each mark have more meaning because it's, you're paying more attention to it. So, you know, it might be two or three minutes to do one, one line of those dots and you realize, oh, I sped up, oh, I slowed down, I, I got too much ink in this brush load, I need to, I, you know, regulate this and it's just like meditating. You relax into it and you have a ideal period of maybe an hour or two where it's working, it's flowing and then it starts to break up and you get distracted. So the, the gallery supervisor before you, mm. she, she did this for a faculty show, and she like took an eyedropper and dropped from a distance. Oh yeah, that was her process. And so I see that real like, yeah. similar <laughs> to this, in yeah. a way. There are, I mean, there are a number of artists working in this way, and, and um, you know, honestly, I'm making I'm making grid paintings. There's nothing new about that for sure. But um, they they've kind of come. They become the process that I've adopted the last couple of years, and I keep finding new um, new ways in which they speak to me. So. So, is there a name for that process? <sighs> no, you know. Um, the fact that these are looking more like textiles, that's yeah. unusual, maybe a more unusual and, and specific to me, really allowing them to take on more of a weaving quality. But um, the grid the grid painting in particular, I don't grid, grid painting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, do, you, do you think about what you're going to do beforehand? Do you let... Do you seek out an idea, or do you let the idea sort of come to you, and is that how you get started? 
Um, some of the work is more determinative than others. Uh, I think there are probably three main directions I'm going in right now. The oil paintings are more found. They're more maybe a color palette or a, an image starts the thing and they develop their own way. These are um, more determinative in that I pick three or four colors or a strategy and I just play it out till the end and just see where it, where it is. Uh, I wouldn't really change the process midstream on that, that piece. Um, and then I have this other body of work with these Sharpie pens and they're more digital and those are the most determinative thing. Well, is that what you're referring to now in your wall? It's kind of pink grids. I really like those. Uh, oh, in the other room? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are, those are coming out of the digital process with Sharpie pens and, and those are files and they get printed and what, what is done is done, you know, at the end. So, yeah, I'm exploring it through three different ways right now. So it's almost the, the medium or the choice of material that helps to play into yeah. the value. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm going to come try to come full circle with this and ask Steve how long it took him to hammer in a nail. A single nail? Or the, <laughs> yeah, it's really similar. Yeah. It took him three minutes to do a roll of dots. I don't know. The repetition seems to yeah. come together here. I was just wondering. A nail is anywhere from one to three hits. And yeah. I work till I get one to three thumb hits, and then I'll set the board aside. That actually is probably 12 years from start to finish. It was by no means consistently working on it. Okay. Because there are some days it's just you don't want to drive nails, and there's other days you, you gotta drive, drive nails. nails. <laughs> so, and I don't fight it if it's what? not a nail driving. Day, I don't want to maybe that's something that for less. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe less can come over, come over for a day. Yeah. I can hook you up with a bucket of nails if you'd like. An art therapist told me this repetitive motion in art was like soothing mm -hmm. ourselves. And I thought, that is so true. It's interesting, like you talking about ideas sort of behind this. And I, I missed the first couple of speakers. But mm -hmm. Most of what I've heard today is about ideas. And I'm just sort of interested. Do you think? I mean, is that is that always been true? Is that where art is today? Is that something particular or characteristic of this department? I mean, not art. All art is made like that. But most of what I'm hearing is ideas. So I, I know, I'm just interested. Well, my personal my personal answer is that it's probably always been that way. But also, we have a, a system in the art world. Today called the MFA, you know, and it uh, it sort of drives idea-driven artwork, Is, you know. Does it? I think so, and it also drives curators who have PhDs in art history who mm -hmm. are seeking out ideas in artwork. So they mm -hmm. they show idea-driven artwork. So yeah, I mean, I, I do think that there's a socioeconomic reason for that, but I also think that artists, you know, historically have been more or less idea-driven, and and they've been uh, more or less wanting to be in the academy or yeah. or not in the academy for that reason. So do you, do, from what you're saying now, do you, do you think that the economy of the state of art is, has had a, a pretty significant effect on where things oh, are? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I guess that's always been true. Too. Yeah. Can I just say something? I, I was thinking 
about that earlier when um, Joseph was talking about his work, which I just appreciate aesthetically, whether there was a story behind it or not. To me, it was just beauty. And it didn't even have to have a story. But I don't know if that's because I'm old-fashioned. No. No, I don't think so. But, but I, I, actually, I actually, I think that if you take, if you take a story and you wrap it up in equal parts of beauty and dissonance and put it all together, that's an unbeatable combination. I think that um, uh, idea is a litmus test for the artist. And I know that a word that Kristen and I use, have used a lot over the years is authenticity. And, um, you know, if, if if you say I'm a painter, I'm a sculptor, whatever, and, and what do you do? You know, the answer to that really is going to have a lot of resonance, or or not. You know, um, I mean, there are genres. I paint the nude. I paint the still life. You know, these huge, bulky kinds of things that you know many artists need to learn how to master in order. To find something in it, or to to put something in it, but um, yeah, the MFA is the terminal degree, and thou shalt not teach in university without it. So there is definitely this uh, commercial impulse involved. But I think at the heart, I mean, I guess I've, I've always been a kind of a defender of the MFA. That I even noticed in going from an MA to an MFA that there are hard questions asked that you better damn well answer or you get washed out of a program. You know, it's like, oh, maybe you were here to you know, hang out with the cool people. Or, I mean, there are a lot of reasons for following a, an art career, but the, the word that uh, Randy, I don't know who brought it up, but it was some, a fuel. Is that your term or was that? Okay, fuel. Yeah, if there's no fuel in the work, I think you saw a pretty broad spectrum of emotions tonight, from you know tears to clenched fists to super laid back to you know, spiritual, everything in between. But I think that all of those emotions are driven by this fuel. Fuel is content, not genre. You know? So I I don't know. I Maybe it's because I got one, but I just appreciate some of the torturous, the rigorous questioning that happens in, in an MFA program, often, one would hope. I would say that there are art programs, and there are painting practices, and there are contemporary artists today who work with this with an idea of, of provisionality, or, or um, coming to the painting with a sense, or the work with a sense of not knowing about something. And, and, and a, maybe a sense of inaction. And this inaction, like a painter who thinks about painting without necessarily painting, may be able to recognize things in the world that have painterly qualities and, and show that in place for a painting. This idea of getting at things with a sense of inaction or a sense of not knowing about, or taking on all the problems and the baggage of representation. So I think, yeah, there are, there are programs and artists who work the way you're coming from. The reason I didn't get an MFA was because I heard that you did have to have all this verbiage 
about what you were doing. And the reason I didn't write the Ameri Great American Novel is, I mean, I knew I couldn't write the, the Great American Novel, and that is why I got into photography. Right, right. Because it was a way for me to express myself. Sure. And so to express myself with words, that wasn't going to work. So an MFA was, yeah. I'm not teaching at a university. Yeah. Well, I've seen your work for so since 1979, yeah. and the questions that other people would ask you in a good program, you've asked yourself. You mean in the work or in work? Yeah, in the work. I mean, right, but it, but I wouldn't be able to explain, especially back then, I couldn't explain right. what was in the work. I just knew it, that's what I liked, and you look at the contact sheet, and there it is. You know which one it is you want to pick. Yeah, I was, I'm not like Robert Franker. I'm trying to direct the narrative, wherein the the woman at the lunch counter or whatever it was, she wasn't smiling in that shot, but she wasn't like ten other ones. So while I can pick a subject like the American flag, I'll look for it in the heart, and I'll see it. And then um, with the digital light, I can't take a lot more and decide. But back when it was a 35 millimeter black and white. You shoot it, and you don't know until you get until you get it developed. You look at it and say, "Okay, I mean, if you get," they said, "If you get ten percent, you're lucky." And they keep flying out of my head. <laughs> um, well, if I could say, I think going back to Carl's question, the word "idea" to me reminds me more of I have an idea in graphic design, but I think what we've seen here it's all about human experience. So I think. That a word idea doesn't really fit. Yeah. We, we're all trying to just tell you about what is my human experience, not, and that may spur someone else onto an idea. But I think that's a better. That's what this is about, not so much ideas. That's okay. my take on it. Yeah. All right, we should probably cut it. But uh, thank you everyone <laughs> for hanging tight here. <laughs> epic, epic <laughs> podcast Q and A. This has been Q&A, recorded in the Kadich Gallery at St. Ambrose University in Davenport, Iowa. The Kadich and Morrissey Galleries are located in the Galvin Fine Arts and Communications Center at 2101 North Gaines Street between Locust and Lombard. All content of this podcast is the exclusive property of St. Ambrose University, copyright 2017, and may not be utilized without expressed written permission.